Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. Welcome to an episode of the Table Podcast. (laughs) We have the founder, the CEO, the creative director, the MVP, that bitch. We have her here. It's me. I'm so excited because not only do I get to share an episode of That's No Longer My Ministry with my best friend, but also it's like a reunion of sorts. And having Isaac here is going to change everybody's life after they listen. Let me start by following my own format. (laughs) (laughs) I've already taken myself back to the tail pod. Let me start by asking you how you're feeling in your body and your mind right now. You know, I feel good. I just finished working out. So I feel probably the most zen that I have felt all day long because, you know, I don't, like, I don't know if everybody knows this, but I know you know this, Nadia, that like a post-workout clarity is like unmatched in like the kind of like endorphin high that you're going through. It's like so different and so important. And so I feel really good. But before that, I felt like shit. Like the day felt very, very long. And I felt like there was so much going on and like meetings are being scheduled at 8 a.m. tomorrow. And I'm just like, absolutely fucking not. But here we are. And now I'm here. And so I'm fucking glorious because I'm with you. Yeah, that post exercise clarity. Oh, my gosh. I had that. I didn't do anything aggressive today because I decided that I needed to choose ease. So I did a cute little power walk with my arms moving up and down. And then I did a little chair yoga because I wanted to sit by the water. And so I was like, what can I do to bring some space into my body, but also just be here taking in this body of water and it was really nice. And afterward I was like, all the anxieties you have about all this life stuff, which is very real. It doesn't have to be solved right now. Right. And just some movement does that? Like how do you, (laughs) I don't understand. Nobody would have been able to tell me this when I was younger and I was running track in like college or even in high school because it was such an anxiety inducing thing for me. But as like an adult and like um, like a recovering like college athlete, which like I have like started saying unironically now, like I'm a recovering like college athlete and I can do shit for fun and it feels good because I'm just doing it for me and it doesn't feel like it used to where it was like, you're not doing well enough. Why didn't you run this time? Why aren't you staying on track? And I like love the fact that like working out is so accessible for everybody. And I can do these workouts that my coach would never allow us to do because he would have been like, this is useless. And I'm just like, this is a great ass workout. And I feel like I'm dying, but it's like fun. Oh, working out can be fun. Like, let's talk about that. That's a concept. I feel like they're trying to keep the working out goods to themselves. I mean, yes, like you said, during the workout, sometimes 
and maybe even the majority of the time you might feel like you're dying it can hurt i mean not all workouts so let's not generalize but it can hurt but then that feeling even like for me maybe 10 minutes into it or if it's a rougher day like okay i'm doing a 30 minute run but 25 minutes into it i feel so good it's worth it like you get to feel that shift of your mind and your body connecting and suddenly like you can feel your own wholeness i don't know if like Nike or Adidas is interested in giving me an ad space because I feel like that was gold. <laughs> Look, I mean, the just do it, just throwing it in at the end. We would have had the ad. It's not even that hard. Like somebody, I know some of somebody who's listening to this podcast has a connection. Call the yeah. girls. Call us. We are ready. We are ready for photos. We're ready for <laughs> we're ready for I'm doing a lot of movement. People can't see it, but <laughs> that's okay what really needs to happen is you introducing yourself to the listeners. I've already introduced you as the former CEO of the table podcast. People probably don't know what that means. So you feel free to share your own bio and give them a little bit on how, you know, we're connected. Yes. So my name is Isaac Sanders. I am an Afro-Indigenous, non-binary, two-spirit human who like is recovering from a lot of things, most recently a goddamn pandemic that we all went through. And during that time was the not really end, but very long pause of the table podcast. Formerly or currently, we haven't talked about it, um, is both of us. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how we know each other, but we also knew each other before all of those things. And we met in the wonderful city of Seattle, which we both hate, but I am still here at, but also kind of love. We like met each other here. And so there's all those things. I'm just in this kind of chrysalis phase where I like dropped a lot of shit during the pandemic because I needed to focus on like what healing actually looked like and it wasn't working. Like I realized that it just wasn't work. And so I have been telling people, they're like, oh, Isaac, you used to do organizing, you used to do all these things, like what happened? And it's like, right now I am like trying to figure out who Isaac is without all of those things and what Isaac's role is in Isaac's life. Like, that's it. Like, period, point blank. I'm not trying to do anything else. I still have to survive. So I'm still working. I still have like a nine to five. But like the real work, which I think happens outside of your nine to five, is me trying to figure out who the fuck I am. So we'll figure out who that is together, probably on this podcast. So (laughs) here we go. Now, I will say, disclaimer, I'm not a therapist and (laughs) I'm not not a life coach, but I am here for it. I'm here for the ride. I'm here to ask questions. Um, You know the drill of the pod. You know what we're going to do. We're going to transition into the first segment, which is called So You've Been Told, where I pull generic quotes from the internet and ask you to react to how they, they feel in your body and in your mind. And so because you and I are very much connected in conversation, in heart and spirit through our mind numbing depression. Yes, bad. That part. I pulled quotes about depression. This was very interesting to me because I talk about depression a lot. I'm trying to challenge myself to talk more about what it looks like rather than just saying the clinical term. But I also realized I haven't really investigated the quotes out there on depression. So this is going to be fun for both of us. Hopefully fun and not triggering. (laughs) I, I have therapy next week. I think I can make it. Okay, well, we could we could stay on for a healing call after this conversation if necessary. <laughs> if necessary. Yeah. The first quote is people who have never dealt with depression think it's just being sad or being in a bad mood. That's not what depression is for me. It's falling into a state of grayness and numbness. 
Mm. I think that a lot of people and like, I also should probably tell people that I also went to school to become a social worker. I have my master's in social work. So like Nadia saying, I'm not a therapist. I low-key am. So there's also that. But it's very interesting because a lot of the times like young children, like people who are younger, their depression manifests in very different ways. Like it doesn't, it's like not a one size fit all and it looks very different for each person. Like sometimes depression looks like very high, like in high functioning is not like the best term to call it, but somebody who is like able to navigate life and be good, but like everything is very numb to them. And then depression can be a whole entire mental breakdown or an anxiety attack or something of that nature. And so I see both sides of it. And I think um, what this quote is really getting at and what I'm like taking from it rather than like telling y'all how I actually feel about it. But what I'm taking from this quote is, depression doesn't look the way that TV says it looks like. Because when people on TV are depressed, they can't get out of bed. They're really sad after a breakup. They're going through a very huge life transition and it's causing them to have like disruptions in their lives and they're like having bursts of anger. Those things can be true, but most of the time when like somebody's going to their therapist or they're being recommended to go to therapy, it's because something is not clicking for them or they feel detached from something. Mm-hmm. And that grayness and numbness, I think is like another like word to add on to is like a detached from reality feeling that like you can't just enjoy, like you can't reach joy, you can't find happiness. Um, and it's not like happiness is something you can seek out, but joy is something like I identify as something you hold in your heart and like hold in your body. And like when you when there's an absence of that, in my mind, it's like, there's something to like check in about it. And it could be depression because it also could be a lot of other things. I think you found a lot more in this quote than I did because I just read it as like, people think depression is just a sadness, which I was like, yes, we're getting there. I'm into this. And then the second half was like, but it's a numbness or grayness. And I'm like, ah, well, honestly, most of the time now, I think I would have I resonated with that in my college years when I felt depression, it really was this state of detachment, which I like the way you said it. See, I already like your words better. <laughs> but but like nowadays, I honestly feel like depression hurts more than not. Like I feel the pain more than I feel a sense of numbness, which is part of the problem is that it's so present that I feel like all I can do is like sit on the couch and think about how much I'm physically in pain. So it just didn't hit it on the head for me because I'm like, I don't know if somebody was reading it at face value without any former understanding in depression, which is something that you have a ton of understanding in. I feel like they would see like, oh, okay, so depression is just like a numbness, like they just feel nothing. Yeah, and that's not the case for most people because like, there's times where I work out to feel nothing. Like, like, like yes, like based on this like definition, right? Like. I work to this some days, like some days I'm like, yo, everything needs to go. And like, if I work out to like literal exhaustion, like I'm numb and then I can go to bed. Yes. Or like for some cases, and Nadia knows this better than most people, sometimes I just take an edible and then everything's gone. Like I'm gone forever. <laughs> and that is what I would call numbness. <laughs> right. Or sometimes I pour myself into like way more work than anybody needs to do because it it creates like this mental state of numbness for me and that is what i'm looking to achieve so i feel like it doesn't necessarily hit it on the head for me but the way you described it i i feel like it's a much better quote so thank you for rewriting that (laughs) the second quote the second quote well i won't tell you how i feel yet depression is being colorblind and constantly told how colorful the world is 
now, Nadia, we're both black. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is not good. (laughs) This already pissed me off and I'm not even thinking about depression. I'm just mad. It triggered me. I said colorblind. (laughs) I wasn't even thinking about depression. Like also, I feel like whoever wrote this had like really shitty people in their lives. Let's start there. If you, everybody around you is telling you that everything's great and you're just like, it's not, and people aren't listening to you, you have to readjust like who's around in your life and change the environment. Because like, if somebody told me like, I feel colorblind in this world, I'd be like, damn, that sucks. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and I'd be like, but it's so colorful. What the fuck? <laughs> no. I, I also would like to argue that I can see color when I'm depressed like that's like saying I just it's so black and white it's like you feel depressed so you can't see anything good or value in the world and it's like actually the fact that I can see so much goodness and I feel this way is contributing to my depression like why can't I get there yeah and that's the thing like I I think that depression has adapted over time in so many different ways because the world has like shifted how we see it, right? So like me on Instagram doom scrolling, for example, I see all of these people being so, so, so successful and like going through a pandemic and somehow finding like side hustles and getting to travel and do all these things. And I'm still stuck in the house. I'm depressed. (laughs) (laughs) I can't leave this house. Like I can't enjoy the things that these people are experiencing and it makes me really sad that they're experiencing these things because like I'm throwing myself right back into COVID because COVID's not over and like in the peaks of it in like November and December people going to fucking like Mexico to go on trips like I'm even more depressed because y'all don't give a fuck about me or the people around you so like that's a depression right but like it was hella colorful so beautiful Love that trip. Hate that you're obviously not prioritizing marginalized communities that are disproportionately impacted by COVID. Because they have to still go to work and you are the reason why they still have to go to work because you're still going on trips. Like, and that makes me depressed. Mm. Now, like, sure, if you were thinking about depression in this very egotistical, like, one-sided thing and we're going back to this grayness and numbness bullshit, Which, like, once again, can be valid for some folks. And I, like, understand that feeling. And I think, like, a better word is detached. Like, you feel detached, which is why you can't see color, which makes you colorblind. Which, like, wouldn't choose those words. Reminds me of some folks in this world who can't see color. Like, if you're depressed and you can't see color, maybe your depression is racism. And maybe we should talk about that. And we're done with that quote. The last quote. Depression is your body saying... I don't want to be this character anymore. I don't want to hold up this avatar that you've created in the world. It's too much for me. You should think of the word depressed as deep rest. Your body needs to be depressed. It needs deep rest from the character you've been trying to play. Okay, we're kind of standing, but this is also one of those things that I feel like one would call a hotep would say, like if you're like in this like motivation. Like it's very, it's very that for me. Where one would like, call a hotep. Yes, like one would call um, this group of folks where they're trying to give you like, we were all kings and queens back in Africa. Like those kind of people would say something of this nature, and I'd be like, that this this sentence made sense. <laughs> this low key hits. This is but kind I'm, of, but I'm nervous. 
But if I lean in too much, I'm gonna realize it's not what I wanted. <laughs> like, and that's fine too. Cause I, I do think the depression is like, like your body telling you that you are performing in a way that is not helpful to like your individual psyche, like who you are as a person. And I don't know if deep rest is always the answer. Now letting go of things, figuring out different things, interrogating, doing the work in the sense of like working on yourself. I don't think that's resting necessarily. And so that's why I would like pivot a little bit from like what this is saying. But I do love the like way that it's talking about like you being an avatar or you playing a character. It's like making me think of like video games a lot. And you know, I love a good video game, but like video game characters even like talk, like at least the ones I play, literally <laughs> talk about how stressed they are about being themselves and like trying to strive for something. And there's like always a purpose there. And sometimes I feel like the characters and the roles that we play in our daily lives sometimes don't feel like there's purpose anymore. And when that purpose disappears, I think that's when the depression starts to creep in and it starts trying to grab at you and tell you like, let's reevaluate. Let's like take this as a signal to like shake you and move you and let you play a different game. Maybe you're just, maybe it's not about playing a game. Maybe it's about like taking a step back for a second. I agree. I like, <laughs> I like the character portion because it gets to performance. And that's something that you articulated really well. It's just that like, even the other day I was like, I just, I feel like my anxiety is creeping in more and I feel my depression intensifying because I feel like I was part of like this delusional relationship. And so like a relationship that felt like there was performance in it, whether or not it was me, that's what I was identifying. And I was like, I don't wanna, that's not me living out like my honest life, my truthful values that are core and essential to who I am. And that makes me feel, well, I mean, I don't think it should shake me as deeply as it does. I, you know, depression is also biology. So let's just throw that in there too. But like, <laughs> like it really, like that thought alone, that was one thought that really intensified the depression for me. But then also, I, I'm also like, sometimes depression is not just a character switching type deal. I like that you talked about the signals that it might indicate in your body and your life. Yeah, because it's not, it's not that simple. And it's not, I don't think depression ever is that simple and that's why so many people are so focused on it right like and it's not just depression right it's like anxiety it's any mental disorder because the things that trigger it are the things that cause it to happen are so different and so individualistic and like I know some people who like study this and they're always like we want to like take away the ego from this but the ego is such a huge component of mental disorders because it's how you feel about the way other people are perceiving you or the way that you're perceiving yourself or the way that something in your past is taking a hold of you at this current moment. And so it's so much rooted in yourself that like it's impossible to pinpoint exactly how this works for each and every person, which is why I feel like looking up quotes about depression doesn't make sense to me because none of them are going to resonate because I need to write the ones that make sense to me because they're for me. Oh. I mean, we've had conversations about it. It's like, what are some tips and tricks that you do to get you your depression? And it's like, we've had so many conversations about it, but I tell you it, and I'm like, this is what works for me. Right. <laughs> Every single time it's like, we're like, I've been trying this. I like, this is what my therapist told me about this subject that seems like it could fit in this scenario. Like, but it's never, oh yeah, I've cured it by taking this exact dosage of this like thing and this is how many peloton workouts i do on a daily basis to make my depression disappear like it's not that because it's not a one-size-fits-all 
I can tell y'all I do like three to four. I can I can tell y'all. Like, and you know me, I'm like, let me go buy myself Peloton. Let me go get my three to four in real fast because it's working for Nadia. And that means it's me too. Uh, you just kind of, I think you just wrote the thesis on this podcast. No healing practice is a one size fits all. And I think that's, that's definitely the point of this segment is really trying to look at the different narratives that exist and trying to expand our own perspectives as we glob onto certain ones and realize like that may not be truth for everyone. And a lot of what we read is steeped in whiteness. So probably for us marginalized folks as people of color, black people specifically in this scenario, we need to not believe everything we hear and read and consume or things that are pushed in front of us. And I think something that I learned when I was working at my last job, I worked with young people and they would like do legislative policy, like conversations with like policymakers and like senators and like representatives, and they would give them feedback. And something we told them all the time was take what's useful, leave whatever things that made you feel or triggered you. Like we're going to figure it out and we're going to work through it. But like you don't have to take what they say as like the like top knowledge just because of their titles. Like they also are human beings. They don't know everything. And I think I took more of that in myself than I did for the young people. I would say it's them, but really it was like, they'd be like, well, they said this and this made me really angry. It's like, I hear you, but like that might be triggering you because you've heard that before. Let's talk about where you've heard that before. And it's like, oh, like now I understand where this is coming from, but like you don't have to hold on to what they said in that kind of way. But like, is this feedback useful? Yes or no? Because we still have a thing that we got to finish. That also wasn't fun. But also, I do that with myself all the time. I'd be sitting there like, Isaac, you heard that shit. <laughs> and you want to fight. But was the feedback useful? Yes or no? <laughs> Sometimes it's not useful. You could just let all of it go. But it is good to think about what pieces did resonate that you can hold on to and build from in crafting your own narrative. Are we writing a thesis? I think so. That was cute. That's going to take us into our next segment, which is the best part, because then I get to ask you what is no longer your ministry. (sighs) Allowing fear to limit my choices is no longer my ministry. And let me tell you why. (laughs) One of the biggest things when I moved to Seattle was like, I wanted to see the mountains and I wanted to see the water all at the same time. That's the reason why I moved to Seattle. It's the only place that you can really do it. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And I'm doing it. And then I started meeting people and they're like, you need to go hiking. And I was like, hiking sounds dangerous. It sounds like something white fucking people do. It sounds like <laughs> things. Yes. it is what white people do. A lot of white people fucking do this shit. And I did it. And in the process, and as I continue this kind of journey of like, not letting fear limit me is like, I find black people who are doing the shit that only white people do. And I'm realizing that like these groups and enclaves of people of color are like black people specifically that are doing the things that I think are fearful are changing like the way that I am in relationship with a lot of things in my personal life. And so it's like, it teaches me that like, the anxiety that comes up or the depression that has taught me that like I can't do these things because white people do them are like it's dangerous because like the KKK is somehow in, in roped and involved in this like I think about I almost I have a story we'll get to the story later but it's like there's certain things that I stopped doing because there was fear that was imposed on me or fear that I like learned to like understand and now as I've gotten to my big age of 27 
I decided that I'm not going to let fear stop me or limit me from like moving forward. And that goes for big and small things. So love that, you know, releasing fear is part is part of your healing journey right now. I definitely want to talk about that. But what activities are we talking about with the KKK? Because so, we can't wait until later to hear that. So this is a story. Back when I was in, living in Oklahoma, I was in high school and there was a church camp that all, everybody went to. And it was done in the falls. It was like Southern Oklahoma, but it was like basically in the boonies in the middle of nowhere. And I really wanted to go because this was going to be the first time I went like river rafting. And like, once again, white people think, why the fuck would I put my body in a raft in a fast moving river? I can't swim. Like, like there's a lot of things there. So like, but I really wanted to do it. And I was like, I really want to go. And my mom was like, you can't go. And I was like, why can't I go? And she's like, you just can't go. Come to find out there was like a like active KKK chapter there. And there was like multiple times that people would go missing <laughs> at this church camp. And the fear that my mom wouldn't let me know about and that made me resent her for a little bit until she finally, well, she didn't tell me, somebody else told me. I was like, you can't go to that camp because there's a KKK chapter that's active like right around the corner from there. And like, if they know there's black kids or like brown kids in this area, they'll get stolen. So. One thing about fear limiting your choices that like, I'm not saying, don't put yourself at risk. No. <laughs> don't do that, that's not what I'm saying. I do not put myself at risk in risky ways that are going to like, let whiteness take me. And when I say whiteness take me, I mean murder. <laughs> right, <laughs> let's be very clear. I mean murder. Don't do risky behavior that's going to like, let other people harm you. But it's like, um, and I've, I've said this to Nadia before, but like, I think I guess I could tell it to everybody. Like I work out because working out are like little deaths. They're like little things that shake my body a little bit to remind me why I'm alive. And like, as somebody who has struggled with like suicidal ideations for like a large like portion of their lives, like longer than, I think I've struggled with suicidal ideations um, longer then I haven't. And so it's like the th the reasons why I do certain things and the reason why I'm kind of like an adrenaline chaser, or I love roller coasters, all those things is to remind myself that like, there's reasons to be alive because there's things that you haven't experienced yet that are going to give you this rush again. And it's like kind of weird talking about chasing a high that like is very temporary, but those temporary highs I can always revisit. I can always go back to. And none of them involve me going in doing like a Black Klansman moment, because I'm not going to do that shit, so. Um, I will not be a volunteer in the Black Klansman moment. Yeah. Um, it's not for us. It's never been our ministry. <laughs> At all. Why would, we, why would somebody do that? <laughs> no, that's a, that's a terrifying story, but also your mom made the right decision. I think she probably could have communicated to you why she made that decision, but also how do you explain that to a child who wants to go to church camp? Yeah, that was the whole moment. And also like the fact that <laughs> me wanting to go to church camp is like beyond me at this moment in my life. But like- Yeah, yeah, well, we yeah. don't have to talk about that part. We're different now. <laughs> but at the time it was very important. But I also imagine like if she tried to explain it to me and sat me down and did that, I probably would have like reacted very dramatically and been like, they can try me if they want to. Because I was also 16 year old Isaac was like, I'm gonna risk myself and my life in more ways that might, end up with me dying by the whiteness so there's i mean you're also an aries i'm ready to fight at all times period 
<laughs> well, I'm curious what has like shown up recently in you discovering that fear was keeping you from making some of the choices that you wanted to make. Yeah, so the way that I think about fear and the way that this story is going to kind of like manifest itself is imposter syndrome. So something that I was talking to my therapist about was that I constantly am like worried how people are going to perceive me or all these different things because I want to do well and I want to be like as efficient as possible, but I don't want an altercation or like my ego to get in the way of things. And I, I love therapy because therapists just basically say the things that I say to myself, but then it's nicer because it's somebody else and then I have to respond to them. But it's like, why the fuck do you care? Like, like it's just like very simple. It's like, why do you care? And I was like, I just don't know. And my therapist was like, because you're afraid. And I was like, don't do that. I think it's just imposter syndrome. And my therapist was like, imposter syndrome is just being afraid that you don't belong. And I was like, why does everything have to be about fear? Why can't it be about another emotion? It's like, well, most emotions are like just fear hidden by some other feeling that you have. And I was like, this is a lot. <laughs> like, this is a lot. As like we kept talking, it started making more sense to me because like right now I'm, I keep studying and pushing off like doing the GRE because I want to eventually get my PhD. It's been a dream of mine for a very long period of time, but there has been multiple roadblocks that I have overcome that like told me like, I'm not supposed to be here. And I was afraid I wasn't supposed to be there because I was afraid I was going to fail. And I was going to let like my friends down. I was going to let my family down. I was going to let all these people down. And I realized that it wasn't necessarily my own voice that was afraid of it. It was everybody else's fears for me. It was what they were saying of like, well, Isaac, like, you know, like the rate of people like getting their PhDs and like being a person of color, like it's really, really low. Like a lot of people drop out. Like, do you even want to like waste your time trying to do that? Or do you just want to make money? I had to sit down and be like honest with myself of like, why are you afraid? Like if those feel like if the like fear is actually you, you need to make peace with that. If it is because it's other people, you need to let that go. But mm. you need to sit down and journal for an hour and just like really nail down what are all the things that you're afraid of that is stopping you from studying and sitting down with this book. And it's like perfectionism. It's all of these things that like at the end of the day, and like somebody's gonna get mad that I'm gonna say this, is all rooted in whiteness, right? Like these are all white characteristics that have been imposed on people of color and everybody actually, like it's also been imposed on white people, but like perfectionism is like a white supremacy characteristic. Why do I have to have something be perfect before it's able to be done? Why does something have to be on a white piece of paper? I say white for a very specific reason, to be sent out and like, why does it have to be uniformed in this document that is like eight by 12 like inches? I don't think that's the size of paper, but like, that's what we're gonna go with today. That's and, what works. Yeah, that's what works. But like, the thing is, it's like, there's so many things that I allow myself to like hold me back that are based in fear, but also are based in whiteness and what I have been learned, I need to be fearful of or have before I can do anything else. And that is the way that whiteness has manifested itself as fear inside of my body, which now is like now anxiety and depression. And so it's like these things that everybody goes through and everybody experiences is impacting us all in different ways. And until we get honest with ourselves and really break that out and like talk about the way that it's like showing up for us, there's so many ways that fear will limit you. 
and you won't be able to make those choices or you will make those choices and you'll make them out of spite like I did for most of my life. But like being a big flame is not sustainable. Sometimes you have to turn the pilot light down and let that thing like simmer for a little bit and then you can get big again. Ooh, uh, love that. Love that quote. That's nice. I definitely want to, I want to simmer. Let me simmer. I love a good simmer. You know, I'll be cooking now. I know you've changed the game. You used to struggle to cut sweet potatoes in my home. I would watch you almost cut yourself and the uh, countertop and really miss the potato for the most part. <laughs> don't tell people this. <laughs> don't even know. Well, you know, something that came up for me in, in your um, conversation with your therapist is, you know, talking about this concept of imposter syndrome. And even in discussing that, you, I, I think there's a more true word or phrase for what's actually going on. And you've already identified it. It's not necessarily imposter syndrome. It's trauma. Mm -hmm. It's trauma responses. Like I'm, I'm kind of, and actually Jodi Ambury, who was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, she actually shared an article and her research on how imposter syndrome isn't really a thing that people of color experience. It's just that we've been told many, many times and we have seen how people of color and black people actually do not thrive in white environments. And so it's not that we're worried we can't do it. It's that we know that you think we can't. Mm -hmm. And I and I feel like like how do you go from living in a world which we still do that truly doesn't believe anything good about black potential yeah and and shifting that and acknowledging like yeah i have a lot of fear because everybody around me thinks i'm going to fail and you having to be the person who's like no i'm not and actually there's a lot of freedom in me ex existing outside of the white gaze. Like, how do you start, let's go into, it's the work for me. How yeah. do you start really building that um, narrative in your own mind and building that confidence and then really going after all these things that would make you afraid? Yeah, and that the thing is, is like, I would say this again, like the first thing to do is identify like what those traumas are, what the fears are, what are the things that are holding you back? But then after you figured them out, I think a lot of people stop there. It's like, okay, these are the things that are going to like cause me harm and like my body's going to react to them. So I'm just going to avoid them. Let's just not engage with them. Let's just not touch them. Let's like throw them away. And if they happen to me, like rather than, <laughs> I shared this um, post on Instagram in which Natty like took and was like, not Isaac yelling at me, but like understanding that like when something triggers you and your reaction to that trigger, that's your business. That's not everybody else's business. And like, like I have personally stopped expecting whiteness to support me or help me and stopped begging for it. Cause there is so many times in my life where I'm like, I want to be seen, I want to be heard. And the thing is like, I need to see and hear myself first. Mm -hmm. And once I see and hear myself, I'm good. Like other people will see me and like, I have mirrors in my life. I have friends and like specifically black people who like know and get me. And even when I'm in a full, like a sea full of whiteness and I say something and people don't hear me and then shit goes left and they're just like, well, like, what was the thing? It's like, well, I gave you this explanation like a month ago and I told you exactly what I thought you should have done. And like, I said that, I heard myself say it. I have a receipt that says I said it. And like, 
well, Isaac, you should have like pushed hard. No, I shouldn't have. You should have heard me the first time I said it. Amen. And like, I'm not going to repeat myself. I've stopped repeating myself. I've stopped trying to be as helpful. And our mutual friend, Cody Charles says, the only way that you can do well in this world is by being a truth teller. You have to tell the truth. And one of those truths that I found for myself, and I feel like a lot of people find for themselves later in life and not as early as like, I think we have, is that your power is in your voice. And if people don't hear that, that's on them, that's on our You said what you needed to say. You did what you needed to do. Now, granted, like whiteness and like power, like will impact you and they'll like try and take you out. They'll try and harm you, even if you've done all the right things and done all the right work. But if you still have that power and you have that truth, whatever harm they're going to cause you, you can power through that because your voice has that thing. And like, it sounds so privileged almost to say those things, but like, I know so many black and brown people who like, once they figured that out, they figured everything out. They've cracked the code. I think like everybody who's been on your podcast who's talked about like, there was a time when I was doing all these things for whiteness. And now like, I don't do that shit no more. And now I'm good and I'm doing my own thing and I figured my own shit out and everything's working for me. And it's not because they've like cracked whiteness, but they've broke through that inside of track striving for something else. And right. I think that it's, a journey. And like we said before, it's not a one size fit all thing. Like just because I tell you that you need to break free of whiteness doesn't mean you're going to do it tomorrow. Like these words might resonate for one person and somebody's going to hear it and be like, bitch, what the fuck? How? <laughs> like we're all in this shit. And I'm going to be like, we are. And once you figure it out for yourself, you will figure it out. Yeah. But you have to believe in yourself and you have to trust yourself, which is something that also is scary and something you fear because whiteness told you not to, especially if you're a black person. And whiteness told you there's no other way. Yeah, That's like, it's so interesting. Everything you've just said has, you know, has come up on the podcast in some ways, you know, big and small, but also has come up for me like every day of my adult life. <laughs> Honestly, it's like whiteness tell you tells you there's only one way to do things. And, you know, it shows up in like, this is how to be professional. Yep. That concept is white, right? This these are the hours you need to be working. That concept is white. You know, this is how you need to approach things. There are so many other ways to approach things. The approach they gave you is probably white. Like it's just and I in the part of not being never being heard. Like, do you know how many black people I know who's like, I, I've been giving them feedback. Like I gave you all of the feedback. I reached this point this week where I was like, I gave you all of the feedback that I could possibly give. Go back and look at the previous feedbacks. <laughs> like it's been done. It's been done. It's been written down. You have it. It's very interesting. So like my current job right now, there is a specific disproportionality metric that we're trying to meet. So like in ending youth homelessness, we also want to make sure we end disproportionality because we know that black and brown individuals in, like are impacted by homelessness at a higher rate. LGBTQ plus young people are like impacted by homelessness at a higher rate for like various reasons. But the way that the system responds to them is in racist and homophobic ways, right? Because the system is a microcosm of the larger system and like that's how that works. And I have been asking each and every community to talk about disproportionality in their meetings. And all they meet me with is like, well, that's not gonna fly. That's not gonna work. That's not gonna do all these things. And as like, a black queer person, I'm constantly like, damn, that must be real hard. And everybody's like, oh no, Isaac's doing that thing again. 
where they're not telling us, they're not giving us feedback because they've already given us feedback, but they're gonna keep saying, damn, that must be hard. Mm-hmm. Because you're really, really upset that you can't have a conversation about disproportionality while black and brown people are still sleeping on the street. And LGBTQ young people are still not able to found, find housing because they can't fit into a shelter because they are non-binary. That must be fucking tough. And the thing that like, I wanted to circle back to was like when you were talking about like timeliness or you're talking about professionalism, um, there's a document that's made by Surge, which is like standing up for racial justice, but I think it's like a white led Oregon. It's like white people talking about racism with other white people, but they have an like exhaustive list of like what white supremacy characteristics are. And like when you said that it's like when you're talking about professionalism and that's how you have to show up in the work- workplace, there's like that reminded me of like the one right way to do things like white supremacy tells you that there's only one way to do a thing. And if you don't do it this way, it must not work because innovation is a black and brown thing. I want that to be very, very clear that black and brown people have been innovative their whole entire lives because there's no other way to survive in this world without that. When you were talking about timeliness, like the nine to five concept is such a fucking white Anglo-Saxon bullshit kind of thing. Like, bitch, I can do work from five to fucking eight. I really can do work at any time of day. Why can white people only work between nine and five? And then also expect us to get work done and know that like 40 hours a week is not enough and then be like, oh, but like, why didn't you get it done? Like, I'd be worried about tech people who'd be working them 80 hour work weeks looking at a computer for so damn long. But if y'all could have just got innovative and creative like the black and brown people who be working there, maybe it would have been more efficient. Mm, but they're too busy stealing innovation from black and brown people who work there. Exactly. Let's be clear. Most of the innovative things you've heard in white spaces, y'all took it. Y'all took it from your nearest black woman, your nearest black queer person. Like literally they're the ones innovating. Yeah. And that's the thing. So I think like, I love that I, in my head, I was about to move on to the next question because we're co-hosting. <laughs> yes, no, ask me a question. I actually am here for it. This is this is not a one-sided conversation. Tell me, Isaac, what would you I like to I had to catch me? myself because I was like, so as a Black woman, <laughs> what, what do you do? Like when you go inward to work through these things, when somebody is taking and stealing your shit and you're like, damn, like, what the fuck? I said this two weeks ago, and now all of a sudden it's a hot topic because this white man, it came out of your white man mouth. Well, what I do, I'm like, I can, I can speak to this. What I do is I show all of the receipts. Nobody is claiming my shit. Nobody is claiming my shit. And I, this is something I've done in multiple roles because it has happened to me in multiple roles. I used to work at a tech company that is absolutely evil. It's called Amazon. And I was like, why am I trying to make it anonymous? And when I worked there, I had a boss who loved taking all of my documents. I would write up documents or edit things, organize things for people as a content strategist. And he would present them because he was the point person. He was the highest leader on the ladder so he was the one who was supposed to represent the work now in his mind in his white mind in his white male mind he believed that meant taking the work and saying i did this not taking the work and say hey took this to my team nadia crafted this you know all the normal things that you should say as a leader representing work no he instead said this is mine this is the work that I did. And then he would come back from those meetings with like the feedback and be like, I need you to work on this. And they're asking for this. And he would make it seem like he was 
sharing what they had shared with me, not what they had shared with him because they thought he did the work. So in instances like that, I contact his boss and his boss's boss, and I just CC everybody. <laughs> I'm like, let me copy everyone, including an HR representative. Let me just CC everybody in case things need to escalate. I got all the names here in this one email. And I say, hey, this is what it looks like is happening. Now, if this is what's happening, I never say that it is because this is the thing in a corporate environment. If you make assumptions, they're gonna get you on them. They're gonna be like, oh, how do you know, blah, blah, blah. So I never do, I just give them all of the information. <laughs> so I say, it looks like this is happening. This is why I think it is happening based in, and then I start linking out to a lot of resources that share that like black women are diminished in corporate environments, that their work is stolen. I just link them to it. I don't have to share the data, it's there. And, <laughs> swiftly get a response that we need to look into this now at the end of the day things don't necessarily go my way right i'm a black woman right so i'm actually not only like the only black woman typically on a team or an org entirely but there are also no black leaders in the org which is a problem so no black person can actually or no person, I should say, who's reading this email can actually empathize with what I'm going through. So therefore, they think it's not real. Yeah. And like, there's two things that you've said, like in that, that like, I want to raise up because I think like, I knew if I asked you this question, I was going to get to the point that I wanted to get to because I knew that you had- you're a ghost. I knew you had the story and I knew I did not. <laughs> so I, I knew you were going to bring us there. But the like, the first thing, which is the latter part that you brought up is that organizations and especially when we're talking about like the nine to five work organizations always tote diversity and they tote like that they're trying to do better but the way that you know a organization is not doing better is if you look at their leadership and the leadership have no people of color on it like harder fact if they are talking about they're trying to work on anti-blackness or like get real specific about what kind of racism they're trying to like counteract or like so like what kind of like homophobia they're trying to counteract and literally their leadership only has POC but like white passing POCs and like people who have been in the field for a very long time are like aligned with whiteness like those spaces are not safe for black and brown people specifically dark-skinned black and brown people because they're going to take your ideas they're going to steal them and they're going to cause you harm because they're not already for things like what you just did, which brings me to my second point, where you removed whiteness from that narrative. Like, yes, you did what I would call, like, let me talk to your manager thing. But like the way that, that you did it is very different because like when Karen wants to talk to your manager, it's because she wants to point out how wrong it was. And you said, no, I need to tell you what's wrong and I'm going to tell you where it's coming from and what it's rooted in and how this is rooted in what like white supremacy and how this is rooted in things that this world has been doing to me and the people who look like me for years. And let's talk about it and how I refuse to align myself in that kind of way. And you need to acknowledge that. And like, if you were in leadership, you would be able to read that and be like, yeah, yeah, that's real as fuck. Like, yeah, we need to do fucking better. Let's figure out some fucking way to promote Nadia. Cause that's how my mind works. I'm like- That was a good ass email too. Like- Right, you said what you needed to say. I will say that email went unresponded to. That labor went unresponded to. Nobody ever addressed this, ever. That's just what it's like for black folks at work. Nobody addresses the shit that you bring up, your feedback that they so desperately want. Yeah. 
Also, when they don't respond to you, <clears throat> that's how you know you're going to get fired. Oh, I had already got a new job, doubled <laughs> my salary. I was like, bye. When people don't respond to those kind of emails, that's when you know you got to. Oh, yeah. There was already work. There was work going on to fire me. This happens. I mean, this happens a lot. It's so, a regular. <laughs> this is a regular part of my work experience. Exactly. And I think that's like, but that goes back to the point I was saying earlier, where you're like figuring out what it's like to remove yourself from whiteness and going on your own path and knowing that that direction is going to hold you regardless. Cause you already had another line of job lined up. So you could have said whatever the fuck you want to. And that's the blackest thing you can do. And that goes for anybody in those scenarios. Like the blackest shit you can do is go out in a dramatic ass way and hopefully get a severance package. Yes. We love a good severance. We don't let these white people fuck up our bag. Nope. Mm-mm. Not that because we still in capitalism. And as much as I don't want to be, the bag needs to be secured. The bag, it's secured. <laughs> as the host of this podcast, bring us back to what we were talking about in the work of really trying to not be afraid. Or even if you are afraid, moving through that fear to do what you want to do. Like we've talked about the fact that part of it is not participating in whiteness and working through that, which could take a long time. Like you said, that's not something that can happen tomorrow, but maybe it's just like a slow journey. But what are some other things that you do? Yeah. So like some things that I am fearful of, and I think it's like easier to explain by like giving you examples of like what I've worked through. I hate being alone. It's not a thing. I'm an extrovert. I don't like sitting by myself. I don't like sitting with my own thoughts a lot of the time because I usually spiral. I text my friends when I'm sitting by myself and it's gotten to be too big. And I know when it, like, I know the triggers and the feelings of like my anxiety coming up. Another thing that I've worked through is like my anxiety and my depression, I've decided to become friends with rather than trying to run away from them and sitting with them and being like, okay, girl, what's up? Why are we in a flight or flight flight or fight response? Let's talk about it, girl. Like, why are we here? And it's like, well, you know, like, you might lose your job tomorrow. Girl, why? <laughs> like, let's talk about it. Let's get into it. And I journal a lot. And so that when I say I'm trying to become best friends with it, it's like me literally journaling and putting A and talking about what my anxiety is feeling and then putting M for me and then responding to my anxiety. And then my letting my anxiety respond to like what I said to myself and really just like putting it out in front of me so I know it's out of my body. Or if like I'm feeling really sad and I literally can't pick up my like a pen to write because I'm so depressed, I'm like, okay, let me talk this out loud to myself while I do something that's caring for somebody else. So like, I need to water my plants. House plants are very important to me because I know if they're fucking struggling, we need to check in with ourselves. Like depression has taken hold because before I got on this podcast, I looked at my coffee, uh, my coffee plant. And it was like, like it usually y'all can't see this. So it gets really droopy. I was about to do like hand. There, mo- there were a lot of hand motions in that moment. And I felt like the listeners could feel them. They should have known. But like it gets really droopy when it needs to be watered. And I love a dramatic ass house plant because I'm just like, girl, I got you. Like, let me water you. But I was like, why are you droopy? Have I not watered you in like seven, like five to seven days? Like what happened? And I was like, damn, Isaac, you was really like anxious about a lot of things. And so you forgot about your house plans. Maybe you need a journal right now. Like maybe you need to take a step back. And like the fact that there's cues that I put in my life to really tell me that my best friend anxiety or my best friend depression is like very front and center we need to have that conversation. And like, it gives me a reset point. I also meditate when I can, or like 
I like I'm really focused on astro astrology and so it gives me like a roadmap of like okay this is potentially what could happen tomorrow mm -hmm. <laughs> like based on like this weekly outcome this like what is going on in my stars this is what's going on in the world right now let me like sit down and like unpack for myself what that would look like for me so I'm very inward all of the time and I feel like I do the work constantly but before when I was I had I was on two boards and I was like in a job and I was like working on a podcast I was doing all of these things and none of those things were like necessarily checking in with myself but it was filling up space so I was too tired to check in with myself so depression anxiety like were calm because they were tired but then I was like, what is a life where I'm not always exhausted? And that means I have to become best friends with my anxiety and depression, which like to answer, answer your question, what other things do I do? It's like, I just have to rest. Like I, I find ways to rest, but that rest looks like working because I'm resting to solve a problem. I'm not resting to just rest, which I think everybody should do. You should rest to rest and you should date yourself to date yourself and you should figure out ways to be alone and be happy about it. Aloneness has always been, always been scary to me. I hate being alone. It's interesting. You refer to your depression and anxiety as your best friends. I'm like, this depression and anxiety, like, is always like a crusty old Karen or like, uh, like, it, they're like my enemies in my head. And so, like, I would fear being alone with them. Like, what happens when there's nobody in the room and I have to actually listen to what they're saying? I don't like that. Like, I don't. <laughs> and it ta it's taken me till like probably this year, probably my 30th year on, on this earth to really enjoy like, oh, there's, there's some alone time. Let me, you know, do some yoga and actually enjoy listening to my body. I don't journal as much as I feel like you do probably because I'm just really inconsistent with writing, but let me like do some kind of creative, like creative activity that will help unlock something for me or go for a walk or just sit by the water and be alone. And I've really learned how to like cherish that time. But you're right, it did come from a place of fear. Like what would happen if I was by myself? And I guess the answer is like greatness. That's the thing. This is the first time I've lived by myself ever which is like very fascinating, but like I'm learning that so many great things and things that I never thought I was going to be good at because I never tried them because I didn't have time to try them because I was by, like, well, I wasn't by myself. I was so comfortable just like being with others and not doing things like I'm painting a picture. I literally never paint. And I'm just kind of like, this is so meditative. Like I can just sit here and focus on the paint strokes and have Riverdale on in the background knowing I'm not fucking paying attention to that shit. And I'm just painting, like I'm living for this shit. Or like, I always wanted a fairy vine wall. Yes. I fucking made a fairy vine wall. And like, I just listened to your podcast because it's not mine, because I'm not a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Reminders. Gotta, gotta keep pulling myself back. But like, I was listening to it and I was just like putting up the fairy wall and I was like crying and all these other things. But it's like, the way that people talk about like meditation or like healing, it always has to be like this very co-opted Western version of this Eastern ideology. And in reality, meditating is running on a, like a treadmill or like doing a push-up, or painting a picture. Like getting into a flow of something. Because you're able to tune into your body because your body is trying to do this thing and do this action. And like, I strive for my mind to be quiet or to be focused on one thing. Because when it's not, that's when I have to talk to my best friend's anxiety and depression. Mm. They're the ones who, like pop up when I am not doing something that like is meditative or like calming for me. 
and knowing those things and learning those things because I like I said like for a long period of time it was running but running then became like it became a job for me and when your coping mechanisms become jobs everything shifts right and so something that I strive for that I think is striving away from whiteness is like how do I create a world where the jobs that I do are actually the things that are healing for me rather than doing jobs that are like might have been healing at one point but aren't serving that purpose any longer? Like, how do I keep aligned with healing through work? And like, what does that look like? Is it working for myself? Is it doing jobs that are like very temporary so I can bounce the fuck out whenever it gets hard or it becomes and feels like a job? Like, what does that look like? I don't know how that's gonna work with the PhD, but we'll figure that shit out later. <laughs> you can make your PhD healing. There are ways, your dissertation, whatever your research is. I'm, I'm dreaming knowing that I don't even have a master's. Like, but also, like you saying that, and then I was just like, you know, Charlesia McKinney was just on this podcast saying the same exact thing. So, like, why am I over here trying to manifest something that's already been manifested? She's helping us. She's healing us through her words. I love that um, what I'm doing is like dropping other podcast episodes. So people are going to listen to this one. And then if they haven't listened to the other ones, I'm like, go back and listen to them. This is the best like PR I could ever ask for. But I wanted to go back. I didn't want to overlook this. I wanted to talk about your magical fairy wall because you just made a post about this and it like made me cry. And in my mind too, I mean, this feels like the work is like doing this for yourself. So like I said, I am non-binary. I identify as two-spirit because of my indigeneity. My gender identity feels very spiritual for me. And growing up, I was very queer. Like, like there is pictures of me posed, like stunting queen, like very cunt at the great age of five. Like she- So cute. I I probably, like, I'm going to try and find this photo and send it to you. My mom hates them and she hides them because it's just like, I was like, you didn't know then? (laughs) Like, are you, are we sure? There has been this overwhelming feminine energy in my body my whole entire life. And I think my mom in the sense of being a black woman, a single mother trying to protect her child, worked her hardest to remove me from that and get me out of those spaces. And so as I grew up, I was very fascinated by fantasy because gender didn't feel like a concept. There was so much like fluidity within fantasy and within like video games and stuff like that. Like I always played as the girl characters because they were strong, but they was bad bitches and they had cute ass outfits on. And I was like me. That's who I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be her. And it's very interesting because like the only times that it was okay was when I was reading a book and I was telling my mom about fairies or I was telling my mom about like fantasy creatures because it wasn't, there's no gender there. There's nothing that like is masculine or feminine about it because like a bitch wanted to be the pink power ranger and because she had a pterodactyl and she also had a pink outfit and she looked great. And she was in high kicks and I mean, also the Yellow Ranger had a saber tooth tiger. And I was like, girl, go off. Why y'all got the best animals? <laughs> it just, and, but it was like, also my mom was like, these are girl colors. And I was like, I don't understand why that matters. But like, as I've grown and I've gotten further and further away from family and I've been able to kind of be myself and explore myself, it has reverted to me constantly being like, what would five-year-old Isaac want to do? Like, what is, like, you living by yourself going to look like for five-year-old Isaac? And, like, I want my home to feel safe and secure, like a play place, almost like this thing that I couldn't have when I was younger because, not because, like, I don't think my mother would have allowed it, 
but I wasn't strong enough or I wasn't like there to ask for it because I knew that if I did that, the world would tell me no. And it's like the same sense of like when there's so much heteronormativity that like suppressed my life. And I didn't come out until I was 22. It took a very, very long time for me to come out, not because of like feeling sinful or anything of that nature. It was literally because I was like, this is going to impact everybody else around me. And like, that's where most of my anxiety manifests from is me feeling like my queerness was impacting everyone around me. So many people told me if I came out, it would do this, it would be devastating, it would do all these different things. And what this wall means for me is that like, I made it and nothing happened. I can wear purple nail polish and get shit ton of compliments and nobody's going to hurt me. Nothing, it's not like the world's not gonna blow up, nobody's going to die. And as I keep doing stuff and like I keep coming into myself, I'm realizing more and more, like, I'm just growing and understanding that people can love me outside of these things. And the same thing with this wall, like I can make this wall. And this is something that's like nurturing and loving five-year-old Isaac and 27-year-old Isaac thinks it's fucking aesthetics. And everybody who comes to my house is going to take a picture in front of it because it's a badass wall. I'm absolutely going to take a picture of it at the end of this month. Exactly. <laughs> it's so it's like there's so many different things with it. But like the biggest piece for me is that I was nurturing a part of myself that I didn't realize needed to be nurtured while I was doing it, which is why I started crying, which is why that was so meditative for me. But it was extremely healing. And that's the work, right? Like not knowing exactly how you're going to like fix the wounds that are not necessarily visible. But once you start doing shit and you start trying things and you're not led by fear and you're not limiting your choices that way you'll get to a place where you'll figure out the thing that is going to solve the problem and you're going to find your answer. But I don't think everybody should go out and make a fairy wall. Although, like I said, aesthetics, pictures, Instagram, we love to see it. But there is something probably within you that you need to solve with some kind of activity or answering what would your five-year-old self want? And like, sometimes that's how I drive my life. I'm like, what would five-year-old Isaac do? Okay, five-year-old Nadia would want to sing. She would just want to sing, like, anywhere. So 30-year-old Nadia is going to go to a karaoke bar, get a nice little drink, get on the stage, show everybody what I can do. Boom. And then sit down quietly in shame because I'm really embarrassed by having that much attention on me at all. But you did the thing, and five-year-old Nadia is good. Five-year-old Nadia would have been more anxious than 30-year-old <laughs> Nadia. I had such a big voice and such... Uh, like terrified, like I didn't speak to anyone kind of demeanor. And so really reconciling those two pieces, like I would get up to audition for things and everyone in the room would be like, this is the first time we've heard her open her mouth. And it's amazing, but we've never heard her talk before. And that was me from like five to like high school. People never heard me speak. So yeah, 30 year old Natty has changed. Yeah. But also it's because of fear that stopped you from like doing all those things. And now you're not as fearful anymore, which is now why Nadia is the best singer songwriter in the world. <laughs> oh my gosh. Quick aside for <laughs> listeners, because Isaac is my best friend, they have traveled with me to New Orleans to Essence Fest. It was one of the most magical times before the pandemic hit that we could have ever imagined for ourselves. And in doing this, we went to Bourbon Street. That's where the tomfoolery, that's what I'll call it, happened. Um, Isaac and I were supposed to split a, what is it called? Fishbowl. Fishbowl. Mm -hmm. And they be putting all kinds of things in that fishbowl. And I drank 
approximately maybe one drink out of that, like maybe a solid drink that you would get from a bar. I drank that much. Isaac finished it <laughs> because you just have a great capacity to drink quickly. I just really- I drink so fast. I don't know why. I'm trying to work on that. <laughs> I just want to make pe- the listeners understand that it wasn't your fault. You just, you can drink very quickly. And the next thing hot. you know- It was so hot. <laughs> it was. We were we needed to hydrate. We got on a trolley. <laughs> and the minute we got on, it's like it hit Isaac. And we were sitting there. It was very late. So it was like quiet. There wasn't a lot of people on the train. And um, the driver was like talking to me and Isaac. And Isaac just could not stop talking about how it was the best singer songwriter that ever existed. Like I really, the enthusiasm. Meanwhile, I don't write songs. <laughs> I sing them. Like it was a wild ride and I was living. It was, it was really, it honestly was very heartfelt. So I was, I thought it was beautiful and I felt really good about it. Um, but at the same time, just full lies, just absolute lies. <laughs> and also the best part about it is Nadia is also, Telling this man, I'm not a singer songwriter. I'm like, not. that is not what I do. And I am just like, yes, you are. Like, <laughs> I feel like from an outsider's perspective, so if I was to embody the trolley man in this situation, I feel like he was probably like, this girl doesn't have the confidence and her best friend is helping empower her. And I'm literally like, but I'm not a singer songwriter. Like, please don't look me up on the internet. You're not gonna find any content. And Isaac is just like, yes, you really are. And I just, you know what? That's love, that's friendship. That's who I am. I'm here to help you out, even if it's all life. We're going to close this episode with our final segment called... What is it called? Hashtag, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Isaac, I need you to take over. <laughs> ah! Okay, so the final segment is I'm not sorry. So it's like talking about like, what are you doing? Like, because healing becomes hard sometimes and you have to take breaks from healing. So what are you doing to escape those things? And so let me tell you what I do. <laughs> wow, you just got a job on the podcast. I'm but hiring a co-host. <laughs> at any point that you need a backup person, I would love to do this because like I said, I'm in a Christmas phase. Who knows if the table podcast is coming back or if it is, somebody, somebody let us know if that needs to be a thing. But yeah, escaping for me, now looks a lot different than it was before. And like, I think escapism before was like going out to bars, being with people. And as I realized how expensive that was and how much I wasn't working on myself, I had to go back to that question of like, what did five-year-old and not even five-year-old, it was more like, what did 13-year-old Isaac do? Because when I was 13 years old, I stopped speaking to people in seventh grade because nobody liked my voice. They would make fun of my voice. So I stopped talking Oh, and just stopped talking. I spent most of my time by myself. I would talk to my mom, but like, I wouldn't talk to anybody else. I had to like, I would walk around because you know, I'm one in Aries. <laughs> yes. Two, wildly dramatic. Like my life is just drama all the time because I've created it. And, like nobody else has done anything, but I had a whiteboard and I was responding to people on my whiteboard. And it was attached to my backpack. How long did this happen? It literally six months. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I spent so much time alone. And what I would do is read books. So I would read fantasy books because I was 13. And like, um, this is a plug. So I am going to create a Discord so people can join. If you want to read YA fantasy novels from like your childhood. So like not Harry Potter though, because we're over her. But like, <laughs> if you're trying to read like the Spiderwick Chronicles 
or oh my gosh the mis like I don't know it's misadventures but like it's the like one about unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket oh a series I, of unfortunate events that one I just really want to reread all of these books with a group of people and just be like what was this doing for you like how did this help let's heal together by reading very short chapter books that we could just talk about that we like definitely read when we were growing up but nobody ever talks about them anymore because they were made into movies that were all trash and like I just want to read I want to read them and be like this was really getting me through some shit I also play a lot of video games and I think that there's like video games that I have played that have like really pivotally changed me as a person like I tell people all the time that Kingdom Hearts franchise made me who I am today like just the idea of friendship making people like survive and like the power of hearts and the power of love and how you can create a whole entire heart if you care about people enough like that is literally why I'm a social worker and I don't know how to explain that any better so like, it's very <laughs> wild to me how much video games have helped and so I have like prioritized like spending time and dating myself by playing video games with myself and spending time like reading books intentionally and being like oh I'm not going out to go to the clubs on a Friday night because I have a date with Lemony Snicket and we're gonna see how Count Olaf is fucking up these kids lives again over a goddamn pig like at this point in my mind as a full adult, that was not that big of a goddamn fortune for you to be fucking up these kids' lives. And I wanna be really sure about it. And that's what I do now is like to escape is to like figure out what like I would have liked as a child or what 27 year old Isaac really likes to do as an adult. But I love this concept that like you're dating yourself. That mm -hmm. is something that I don't think I've done. I, I have definitely not done it intentionally, but I like, that you know you're setting up moments for you to get to know you better like that's what we're doing when we go out on dates we really ask a bunch of questions of everybody else but what happens if we just turn that around and ask ourselves a lot of questions and like do the activities that make us happy that sounds beautiful that's what you have to do because i think like in talking about being afraid of being alone if you know yourself you know what you're going to be alone with and so the only way that you're going to do that is by sitting with yourself and figuring it out it's scary and it's hard. And like some of those things ended with me having a panic attack because I was so anxious or like the FOMO took over. I didn't realize how bad like my fear of missing out was, but I was like, everybody's going to the bar and I'm not going because I decided that I needed to save money and I'm gonna watch this TV show that I haven't watched yet that I know I'm gonna like about fucking dragons. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gonna here and watch it. I was watching it and I was like, the, the dragons aren't a drink. And I'm like, baby, if I drink and it's like, no, Isaac, you need to sit with this feeling and figure it out. And eventually the dragons got me through. That's real. I think the, that the fear showing up in, in making choices that, you know, are different from your, from your regular flow like that in deciding there was a period of time that I wasn't drinking at all. And I went, but I wanted to go to like a girl's night and I got there and I was like, oh, like there's a whole bottle of tequila there and I see everybody taking shots and what's it gonna mean if I don't participate? What are they gonna say? How am I gonna feel? And then I just did it and I was fine. <laughs> like, I literally was like, oh, this is kind of nice though because there's snacks here and I really wanna eat these snacks and I can still participate in all of these conversations. I still have something to add. And at the end of the night, I was like, this is great. And I'm not going to feel like crap tomorrow because I didn't put this poison in my body. Because at that time, 
drinking was really triggering all of my anxieties and making me feel so bad about myself. Instead of embracing the fear and being like, I'm just going to do it with everybody else today. I was like, actually honor what you said you know about yourself. Just do that and see how that feels. It felt so good. And the thing is, when you set boundaries for yourself and you actually respect those boundaries, it's wild what it does to you and what it does for your like mental health. Because I think that like a lot of the times, like the peer pressure that you're hearing is not your peers. It's literally you trying to like perform again, right? You're trying to fit into this role and into this space. And what happens when you authentically actually show up? What happens when you're like, oh, actually, I'm not drinking tonight. I said that I wasn't going to drink, so I'm not. And people are going to be like, okay. like Right. Like the worst they're going to do is get mad at you. And if they get mad at you, you can just throw their drink in their face because it's not your business. So <laughs> That's a Nadia move. <laughs> oh, I want to thank you so much for joining me for this discussion. It's not unlike the everyday conversations we have via text, but yeah. I just thought <laughs> the podcast deserved to hear from the Isaac Sanders. So something I've always wanted to tell you, and I haven't been able to tell you, but I wanted to tell you when I got on the podcast, because I knew that this was going to be the space. I am so happy that you went from the table podcast and was like, I'm going to do my own podcast. And I was just like, shut the fuck up, go the fuck off. Because I knew whenever you were on it, that you were destined to do amazing things in this way. And I am so proud of you. And like I said, the table podcast might come back and might not. I started this podcast because the table podcast inspired me to do that. Like, I honestly didn't think I would like the sound of my podcast voice until we did ours. And I was like, oh, this is kind of lit. I feel like my like waiting and hesitating to launch it was also fear based. Like, how would it be received? People aren't going to like it as much as the table podcast. But guess what? Both podcasts can exist. Something my therapist recently told me is that like, rather than thinking about things in good or bad or if people are going to like it or not, like you have to think about it. Is it healing you or is it harming you? Is it healing others or is it harming others? Most of the time it's healing everybody. <laughs> Every single episode I've heard of this podcast has done nothing but bring more joy and light into my life. This podcast is a labor of love and too often labor by black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that's no longer my ministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye fam. <laughs>